0: While hunting as recreation is pursued all over the world, it holds a special place in the American psyche with its themes of rugged independence, the outdoor lifestyle, wildlife conservation, and in modern times, fierce debates over constitutional gun rights. In the 19th century, sport hunting grew in popularity as sweaty dollars sought the restorative values of the natural environment. Many were inspired by the likes of Buffalo Bill, Teddy Roosevelt, Annie Oakley, and decades later, Ernest Hemingway, all of whom featured prominently in the public imagination, not least for their hunting skills. In the 19th century, I'm sorry, the term fair chase is itself taken from the hunting lexicon, an ethical ideal by which animals are shown restraint and given a fair chance to evade their pursuers. In his new book, Philip Dre delves into the many aspects and controversies of hunting in America, including the role of hunting in the birth of the conservation movement, as well as the class, ethnic and racial divisions hunting created. Mr. Dre has co-authored or authored seven books on American history and culture, including There is a Power in a Union, The Epic Story of Labor in America, and Capital Men, The Epic Story of Reconstruction Through the Lives of the First Black Congressman. He has won the Robert F. Kennedy Book Prize, the Southern Book Critics Circle Award, and he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And now, without further ado, please welcome me in joining Philip Dre.
1: Thanks so much for coming out on such a beautiful day, or coming in, rather. Um, it's a really a great honor to be here at the Athenaeum, and thanks to Elsa and also Victoria O'Malley who helped arrange this event. Um, one thing I love about this building is there are still telephone booths in it. You know, I haven't seen one of those in a really long time. It's wonder- I hope they're, they deserve those. I'm sure they will, uh, anyway. Um, As Elsa mentioned, my book is about hunting in America, the history of hunting. Um, My idea in writing it was, you know, most books about hunting are either by hunters or those who are vehemently opposed to hunting. And what I tried to do was come at it sort of from the outside, I'm not a hunter myself, and try to look at it instead of as a red state, blue state kind of issue, rather as for its long historical trajectory in America, basically. Uh, it goes back all the way, really. Um, and so it's been an interesting project to work on. As you can imagine, people have strong feelings about hunting. Or, you know, I find, I am I live in Brooklyn, and there, if you mention hunting to people, they, they're not even, they think maybe you, you're, they can't believe you're serious, really. In fact, when my book first came out, I was showing it to a younger man, and he said to me, he looked at it for about 20 seconds, and he said, is it really about hunting? He thought it was some sort of meta novel or something. like. He couldn't believe it would be that square as to actually be about hunting. At the same time, if you go out to Montana or Wyoming and mention hunting to people, they look at you like, why are you asking me about this? It's Tuesday, we're going hunting. I mean, there's like absolutely no separation or no consideration, really, of it being anything out of the ordinary. And there, the schools close on the first day of deer season, that kind of thing. It's just, it's part of the fabric of life, really. Um, Speaking about it being part of the fabric of life, one thing that's interesting about hunting is there Among anthropologists, there's something called the hunting hypothesis, which a lot of hunters embrace, and that's the idea that civilization basically began with hunting. It was the need for people, or even sort of pre-human creatures, basically, to work together to coordinate in order to be successful hunters, and that this is really the origins of civilization. There's a lot of pushback from various parties. Some feel that really they were coordinating escaping the animals who were actually hunting them, and so on. Uh, But we know that hunting does go way back and precedes agriculture by hundreds of thousands of years, basically. Um, So it really is when hunters and pro-hunting folks talk about it being part of our DNA, that's what they're referring to. Um, And of course, if you talk to hunters, I don't know how many of you are hunters, they often talk about the kind of almost quasi-religious experience of being out in nature, hunting, sort of engaging with nature in this very unique way, which is to be become a predator yourself, basically, and to be engaged with anyone who's fished or hunted sort of knows that feeling a little bit. It's not just like taking pictures or going for a hike. You're actually engaged as a competitor, in a way, with with nature, and a lot of people find that very intoxicating. Um, of course, we also know from prehistoric cave art that hunting, in a, infatuation with the hunt and with animals, has been around for a very long time. And, uh, of course, here in America, what was interesting is it was one of the preeminent forms of genre art in the 19th century in America. If you've ever seen old uh, sideboards in dining rooms that are innately uh, you know, carved uh, with hunting tableaux, uh, or wallpaper in old B&Bs. Um, everything from bo- boys' pajama patterns uh, to plates to the f- pieces of furniture. Hunting was a very popular theme. Um, it later became picked up by the gun industry uh, in what was called predicament art. You know, there's a lot of hunting art still around. It's, a lot of it is collectible now. Uh, but predicament art was uh, used to sell gun hunting equipment and guns, basically, just like the term sounds, it always depicted hunters or people out in nature in a tight fix, like a grizzly bear coming around the corner or a cougar or something meanwhile the the person in the foreground is just realizing that they 're in danger and of course reaching over for their handy Winchester or Remington, whatever it is and of course it 's the art leaves, you don't really know how this is gonna be resolved. It can look pretty dire, but of course, the trusty weapon is there, and usually the brand name is very visible, so. Um, but that was very common, and very, that kind of old calendar, hunting calendar art. And you'll still see it, actually, in outdoors magazines. It's still a very common motif. and that's, I'm gonna mention that again in a moment, too. It's because hunting, the thing about hunting is that it has a built-in narrative that's very powerful. And people found that to be true, not only in art, um, like say the Currier and Ives prints, about half of which are hunting scenes basically, but also in uh, some of the first sports writing in America, which I'll talk about in a second, which also they found that hunting stories were among the most popular stories, because it's a great, you can you know, I'm sure we've all read those stories. They're, it's, you know, a person uh, out on their own, they're, they're, tracking an animal, they're stalking, the animal might attack them, whatever it might be. Um, but the, that type of literature was very popular in the 19th century and actually still has a, an audience. You know, it's interesting when, writing this book because I, whenever you take on a book project, you always wonder about what you're gonna have to look at. And of course, it turned out that every gentleman hunter of the 19th century felt they had to write their memoirs. It's it's an amazing thing, both people who hunted in the US and also who went abroad to do it. Um, And so there's many more volumes of hunting stories and hunting memoirs than anyone could ever wade through uh, with maps and drawings and all kinds of things. Um, So as, as Elsa mentioned, really the theme of my book is that hunting, it's really inseparable from American history. It has to do with how we viewed nature and wilderness, westward expansion, the idea of conquest and manifest destiny, and also self-reliance and independence as well. And as you know, it's, there is no politician, certainly no president, who will not at least pretend to be a hunter. This goes all the way back. Uh, of course, Teddy Roosevelt was our most famous hunter president. He was probably really a hunter more than anything else. But, um, you know, it goes back to George Washington, um, apparently, of course, what he was doing was fox hunting, largely, in the Virginia countryside. But apparently Washington, every morning when he got up, the first thing he'd say before he was even out of bed is he'd ask his servant whether it was a good day for hunt. And he was someone who loved to be in the saddle on a long fox hunt, which really is a, a fox hunt is basically an excuse to ride at a pounding pace for about 30 miles across open country. It's very demanding horsemanship involved. And that's really, uh, catching the fox was often kind of secondary to the whole affair. Um, what can I talk about else? Uh, obviously, at the early like, colonial, in colonial times, hunters were not always respected because in the colonial period, really it was the farmers who were considered kind of the model citizens, the people who were settling the country, people who were hunters, who lived in the woods, were often viewed with a kind of suspicion that they were not, they were almost like half beasts themselves. They, were, they weren't they were respected or trusted, really. Um, that would all change, though, during the American Revolution, when, as you know better than anyone else in Boston, that it was those kind of buckskin heroes, you might call them, or, ba- or backwoods, backwoodsmen uh, with their long Pennsylvania muskets who distinguished themselves in the American Revolution and emerged as heroes. Uh, And then after the Revolution, you had people like the Pathfinders, people like Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett, who also kind of furthered this tradition. And so that's how the first hunting became they gave a kind of legitimacy to hunting because they were suddenly seen not as marginal characters who hung out in the forest and we didn't really know what they were up to, but rather these stalwart individuals who basically were reconstituted Native Americans in a certain way. They had adopted the clothing, the shoes, a lot of the hunting tactics. And so it was an interesting, it was sort of an emergence of a persona in American life, really. And of course, these people, Boone and Crockett, as anybody who lived through the 1950s remembers, they were huge heroes during the Cold War because they came to represent American individualism, uh, kind of ruggedness. Um, Both of them had TV shows and movies. I think they were both played by the same actor, a man named Fess Parker, does anyone remember? People wore coonskin caps like Davy Crockett. It was a huge trend. And I think that was because during the Cold War, they kind of represented something about America that people very much valued. Um, Their love of marksmanship, their skill at marksmanship became a kind of American trait. And that's really where you get the NRA coming in. Uh, After the Civil War, a a Union general and a war correspondent from New York got together and agreed that the shooting had really been pretty terrible. During the Civil War, even though of course it was a it was a horrific, horrific war in many ways, that they felt that on both sides the average soldier or recruit really didn't know how to shoot. And so they thought this was important too, that there should be a kind of an organization that fostered good marksmanship. And that's where the NRA was established in 1871 for this purpose. Uh, it was established in New York. They immediately opened a rifle range at a place called Creedmoor, which later became a psychiatric hospital on Long Island. But for many years, it was an old farm that that they turned into a rifle range. And the interesting thing was, rifle sport caught on. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine having the patience for it, but it actually was a spectator sport. People would come out from New York City or from New Jersey on trains to watch by the thousand these rifle matches against often teams from other countries, um, and it was very. If you look at the like the New York Herald coverage of these events, it's very detailed with shot-by-shot shot analysis. It's a kind of obsession that we could never. Uh, Imagine, in our way, our whole sense of time and space that you would be able to focus on this. Um, But what happened is shortly after the NRA was established, the Irish rifle team challenged, who were the world champions, they challenged America and they said, show us what you've got. So of course, right away then, the kind of, the early sportsmen and, and rifle enthusiasts said, well, we have to, we're the home of Daniel Boone and David Crockett, we have to respond. So they accepted the challenge. The Irish team came to Creedmoor. They had this match that spread over a few days. It was highly dramatic. I describe it in the book. But um, uh, the United States pulled out a very narrow victory. And that itself then was this huge thing that the United States had, within just a few years, gone from being alleged, you know, it was alleged that they were poor, poor shots, they had actually become the world champions at marksmanship. So that in itself then, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if it's so common today, but there used to be like rifle teams at high schools and colleges. It became a thing that was a recreation, basically, and a lot of people took it up. Um, and it eventually morphed into trick a lot of trick shooting, which was, again, a type of entertainment we don't really enjoy or sponsor too much nowadays, but say 100 years ago or more, it was the kind of thing that say here in Boston people would get together to see, to pay money for, to see people do trick shots behind their back in a mirror and so on. Um, you know, when, the story is that when the United States entered the First World War, General, they said to General Pershing, well, what do you, you know, what, should, what do you need? Airplanes, tanks, tell us what you need. And he said, well, all we need, we're Americans, all we need are rifles. And of course, they went way beyond that, but that was the kind of confidence that someone like him had, and many people did, in the idea that Americans would always be like the Minutemen, basically. Um, another very important person in all this was a, uh, an Englishman named Henry William Herbert, uh, who came. He was a kind of a kind of a rascal, basically. He was in line to become an earl in England, but he was sort of far down on the line of succession. He got impatient, Uh, this is around the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, He also ran up a lot of gambling debts. He was a kind of a, he loved field sports in England. He was of the gentry, Uh, but he was, he got in hot water. And it's still not 100% clear what it was exactly, but long story short, they used to have a term remittance man for somebody like him, which was someone from Britain who had disgraced the family, basically, and the family would pay for him to come to the, to the New World. Like, send a letter, let us know how you're doing, goodbye. And so that's what happened, they sent him over. And he was someone who, was very, very you know, a romantic, he wanted to be the next Walter Scott, so he began writing these epic novels that were horribly turgid. Even though he was very smart and a good writer and had a classical education, he was teaching classics at a boys' school in Lower Manhattan. But his novels didn't sell. Uh, even Edgar Allan Poe, who was one of the leading critics of the time, just savaged him and said, "Oh my God, he's intolerable! You can't, you can't, we can't even have him here. We have to, you know, whatever." The miracle, though, was that he, uh, in his desperation, he had friends. There were these kind of very nascent or early sports magazines, mostly that covered what they called turf action, which was horse racing at the time, which was one of the few sort of legitimate sports. A lot of the other sports were called the fancy, meaning, which was an odd term, it really meant they were these awful sports like ratting and cockfighting, bear baiting, things that were done in basements, usually with gambling, that people... So you know, decent people really did not want to have anything to do with. So horse racing was one thing that people did enjoy, and field sports, hunting and fishing, became another one. Um, what happened is friends of his said to Henry William Herbert, look, why don't you leave off trying to be the next Walter Scott? Why don't you write some of these uh, woodland tales, as they called it? Since you grew up, you know all about the outdoors, hunting, you, whatever you grew up in the English countryside and so on. He, he became a very successful, he really America's first successful sports writer. He, he wound up just all that kind of prolix that he was putting into his Walter Scott imitations, he put into these woodland tales. And they're sort of gorgeous to read, all about the hunt and how after the hunt you have a picnic lunch with just the right type of champagne and cheese. And he made it all seem very wonderful, kind of. And meanwhile, he egged on American men to get with it, basically. He had he was a kind of you know, very proud Englishman, and he felt like, You American men, you're working in offices and you're not, where where is your your vigor? You need to get outside, you know, embrace the out of doors, take up hunting. And so a lot of people were influenced by his writing. He changed his name to Frank Forrester as his pen name, um, which he then was known by. And he was so popular that there were Frank Forrester clubs uh, that started uh, and so on. Um, And he became quite a force in terms of also suggesting some of the early game laws as well. Um, And that's where we get to the concept of fair chase, which is the title of my book, which fair chase was a term. The English called it true, true sportsmanship. What it meant basically was that hunting was only legitimate or ethical if the prey had a chance to evade the hunter. So in other words, there were a lot of rules that one was obliged to observe. For instance, if you were going to shoot water birds, you couldn't shoot them when they were in the water. You had to wait till they took flight. Uh, You weren't supposed to just shoot randomly, but rather aim at one individual bird. Uh, You weren't allowed to chase deer, have dogs chase deer into bodies of water, because of course then they become almost immobilized and they're easy you could just row a boat up to them and hit them over the head with an oar and that people considered that a way to harvest a deer as they said but of course hunters the true sportsmen said no that's not so that's that's really where fair chase came from and it became ensconced really as an ever growing list of things that were really not ethical and not allowed Um, And it's a list that still is around. The Boone and Crockett Club, which was started by Teddy Roosevelt in the 1890s, um, is still with us and still publishes. Of course, today the rules about fair chase involve things that never existed in the 19th century, like drones, trail cameras, cell phones, uh, using sophisticated baiting techniques, things like this. Which So they're always having to update it, basically, to remind hunters that there's only so far you can go, in this way are, are supposed to go. Um, and interestingly enough, one thing about fair chase—well, there's a lot of interesting things about fair chase. One is that the promoters of it believed that what was so powerful about it was that you had to—it was like self-enforcing. In other words, you were out in the woods by yourself. What you did, obviously, you could cut—you could make do a lot of shortcuts if you were of a mind to. But that the idea was by adhering to fair chase, you were. It was sort of character building, basically. You were better than this. You were rising. You were out of respect for the the game that you were seeking. Um, Of course, the other thing we'll get to is, too, is that Fair Chase, really, that's kind of where the conservation idea came from. In other words, Fair Chase was a very powerful ethos. Um, And it's kind of interesting. When you look, it's too bad that a lot of other areas of American endeavor didn't have a similar kind of code of ethics, whether it was like mining, Um, all kinds of others, like industry, say, maybe forestry, there really was no, it was really like the literally the Wild West, whereas hunting very early on did have this code of ethics. While some might question, well, is there anything ethical about shooting an animal, basically, however much chance you give it, still, the idea that there was this code, again, it led to the sensibility that then gave us early conservation efforts kind of grew out out of this. I'm sorry I keep hitting this microphone. Um, This was uh, one thing, it's hard to fathom in a way now, but remember that this time there was very few, there was no baseball or football or bicycling or a lot of other activities that we now take for granted. So hunting as a sport took off, it was a huge fad. Um, there were stores up and down Lower Broadway. I know there were some here in Boston as well, like sporting goods stores. They sold guns, every type of gentlemanly accoutrement you would need to go up to the Adirondacks or in the Berkshires or wherever you might go. Um, And the idea was that you... This was reinforced over and over again that you were vigorous, you were virtuous to be hunting uh, You were doing something good for your health basically because there were all these testimonials about I went hunting for two weeks in the Adirondacks and I came back and my tuberculosis was gone or consumption as they called it then There were all these kind of all these arguments for it Um, One was actually religious Um, There was a concept they called muscular Christianity um, which was actually fostered in part by someone who was right down the block here at the Park Street Church. There was a, a minister named William Mur- uh, William um, William Murray, and his nickname was Adirondack Murray because he loved the Adirondacks so much. They called him the shooting parson. He loved hunting. So the story is, is that he would bring his shotgun to the church right here and put it next to the pulpit. I don't know if that's really true, but... But he was a huge advocate for people, muscular Christianity, in other words, what he worried about is like, we don't want a bunch of weaklings or striplings. Our men, even though you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sitting around just like, whatever, you know, burning the midnight oil, reading biblical texts or whatever, get out there. Uh, and he was seconded by this in another famous Bostonian, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who wrote extensively about this concept of muscular Christianity in the Atlantic Monthly. Um, uh, Of course, the the downside to all this was there was a a huge uh, outpouring of interest in hunting, buying equipment. Literally, uh, uh, Adirondack Murray wrote a guidebook to the Adirondacks, which was so detailed and so persuasive that almost within a couple of years after the Civil War, people in the Adirondacks were alarmed by it because they called the tourists who started flowing into the Adirondacks Murray's Fools. Because they didn't really know anything about being in the outdoors, but they had gone to Abercrombie and Fitch, they bought a tent and very a shotgun or whatever it might be, and showed up there. And it was this kind of you know collision of a very kind of rural and remote place with suddenly an influx of tourists, basically. And of course, as anyone who's been to the Adirondacks knows, it, there's all these old resorts there. That was another feature of this: is the commercialization of hunting corresponded to the promotion of people like Frank Forrester, Adirondack Murray, Higginson, um, newspaper magazines, uh, we know it as Field and Stream, but originally it was called Forest and Stream. Uh, One thing about these magazines was that they, you know, the study of natural science in America ever since Franklin uh, had been a kind of gentlemanly pursuit. And the advocates of hunting very wisely always included that. They adopted that very early on. All hunting publications always had like a natural science column. And the idea was nurturing this idea that you're, you're an outdoorsman, but that also means that you're engaged with nature as a scientist, basically. Um, at that time, in the 19th century especially, the idea that you could be a natural scientist, it's not like today where we think of scientists as people at MIT or whatever who we might never meet or they have great expertise. A natural scientist was someone who could afford the equipment for some tabletop demonstrations and what have you. Of course, Franklin was the best example of that. Had a second grade education, but he became Dr. Franklin. He was, of course, much revered for his scientific work. Um, Where else can we, one thing I should mention is that women were not left out of the hunting trend at all. Um, part Part of it was, of course, their own interest in it, they wanted to go to the out-of-doors as well. They, you know, this was during the Romantic era when the fear of the wilderness had more or less dissipated. The idea was people wanted to begin seeing the sites, going to Niagara Falls, going to the Adirondacks. Railroads were beginning to take people there so that going to a place like Saranac Lake, say, was not such a daunting endeavor. Um, but there also was a kind of canny... Uh, effort on the part of the hunting publications, the periodicals. There was one called Spirit of the Times, Forest and Stream. They often encouraged women because they wanted to protect the idea. American hunting was taking on this interesting character of being part Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett, but also part Frank Forrester, part British elites. And, and so they wanted to, by having women involved, they felt that that would reinforce the idea of hunting as a refined. Not like that. It wasn't barbaric or crude, but rather a refined pursuit. And many women distinguished themselves as as hunters. Um, of course, they would often invoke; they would call them Dianas, who was the Roman goddess of the hunt. They say, "Oh, there are some Dianas going to the Adirondacks this weekend." Um, there really there turned out to be several women who were actually very pivotal to this development in hunting. One was uh, a woman named Frances Palmer, who was an illustrator, an artist for Courier Knives. She, I think, created about 200 famous Courier and Ives prints. And because she was a lithographer as well, she not only was the artist, but she could also do the lithograph, which meant that she could ensure its high quality. And no one knew at the time she was the only woman who Courier and Ives employed. And it really wasn't until many, many years later that this even became known to historians of the Courier and Ives catalog. Because all her work, most of it, was of racehorses, steamboats, hunting scenes, and so on. Um, but she was one of the most successful Courier Knives artists, and actually some say she was the first woman artist to support herself with her art in America. Uh, she was very successful in her lifetime, actually supported her whole family with her income from Courier Knives. I think she would just sign the work F. Palmer. I don't. No one really knew for sure at that time. Of course, the Courier Knives artists generally tended to be anonymous, but... But Fanny, they call her Fanny Palmer. She's an interesting, very interesting character. Another one was um, Martha Maxwell, the Colorado huntress, who basically introduced the idea of animal dioramas in America. She was a woman who took an interest in taxidermy. Um, She lived in Boulder, Colorado. To get her specimens, she would get her shotgun and go out and find what she needed. Um, And then she was, her interest in a way was she was, she wanted to create a museum that, for which she could charge money. She was a businesswoman. And she knew that people loved to come to her house and see her taxidermy. So her idea was to build up a huge collection, which she actually did. And she opened something called the Rocky Mountain Museum of her own taxidermy of animals she herself had collected as specimens, basically. She introduced several innovations into taxidermy. In other words, one was using like a sculpture, a metal sculpture inside not just stuffing it with straw, but rather making it like a sculpture and then building around that sculpture It tended to make the finished animal look more animated and allowed her then to take the next logical step, which was to pose the animals in groupings like they would be found in nature. And of course, we're all accustomed to this. You go to a natural history museum, that's the way these tableaux are presented. I think there were other people doing this at the same time, but she was one of the innovators And she was rewarded for her efforts by being asked by the government to bring her exhibit to the big Philadelphia World's Fair of 1876, which was the centennial uh, exhibit, or exposition of the United States. It was a huge event. Um, If anyone has ever read of that era, it was the 100-year anniversary of the country. Uh, There was a huge steam engine there. It was all about progress in the future. But Colorado's pavilion, was basically featuring the Colorado Huntress, and she was there. She was only about five feet tall, and that she had these, uh, the, you know, cabinet cards made of herself posing with her shotgun, and apparently it was a huge big hit. And all these stuffed out people, you know, that she had like a flowing. There was flowing water through the tableau, and all this. So she got huge, huge kudos for this. Um, another woman who also, we, you'll, her name is more familiar, is Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley started out. She was a child of extreme poverty in rural Ohio, and to help support her family, she, at age six or seven, began shooting, and she proved to be a prodigy at it. Um, She was so good that she was able to basically harvest animals, so to speak, in ways that they were, without really hurting the idea that they could be sold as food. So she not only fed her own family, but it turned in, she turned into like a young businesswoman, able to market her, mostly shooting birds, basically. But in so doing, of course, she became a sharpshooter. Uh, and when she was a teenager, she began entering into shooting competitions, which again, because of what I mentioned earlier about rifle sport being a popular fad, turkey shoots, contests of shooting were very popular, often for prize money or some such thing. And Annie Oakley, Distinguish herself at a very early age as someone who was talented beyond all measure, and of course she wound up being in uh, Buffalo Bill's Wild West, which I'll talk about in a second. Which was, you know, Buffalo Bill was the most successful buffalo hunter of all time, and when he took his show on the road, he when he got hooked up with Annie Oakley, that was a huge thing because she was even a greater superstar. She became a huge star. Uh, and of course, her her part of the act was trick shooting and marksmanship. She, her husband was often her model, or he would hold something on his head or whatever it might be, and she would shoot it off. Or one of her tricks was to somebody would throw several items in the air, all of which she would manage to shoot before they hit the ground. And of course, she did it all with a certainly a lawn, um, and she was a very a very pleasing kind of personality, really, and really one of an early celebrity, basically. As much as Buffalo Bill was a huge star, to have the two of them in one show was was very dynamic. Um, who else could I mention? General Custer, of all people. You know, it's interesting because we're all familiar with the story of General Custer, but when you really read about him, he he was like an aspiring hunt. He was a big hunter. And he wrote a column about hunting for a magazine back in New York. And often when you, you know, out west, there was a lot of downtime. Can You can imagine anyone who's traveled in the west today knows how isolated it can be. Imagine how it was in the middle of the 19th century if you were posted at an army post in the middle of Nevada or Wyoming. So there was a lot of free time and a lot of hunting went on. So that's where you had a lot of like also elite gentlemen hunters were officers in the army. And also later, the enlisted men as well, who got into hunting. Um, And Custer, you know, you almost get the idea that like looking for Sitting Bull was kind of an afterthought. Really, his hunting was like really what he was obsessed with. Um, And again, he he had he lived, I almost think he might have become a sort of a naturalist or a writer about natural, you know, uh, natural science or the outdoors. That really seemed to be where he was where he was heading. Oddly and tragically, really, the there's another general, General George Crook, who has often one of the great mysteries or uh, scandals, really, of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, in which Custer and his men were massacred, is that General Crook was his cohort had gone hunting, basically. And instead of rendezvousing with Custer, as many thought he would, he had met some resistance from the Sioux and decided the best thing to do was retreat and not hearing anything from anyone else for a few days figured like, well gee, this looks like good hunting ground. So he too, General Crook and his gentlemen officers went on sort of a hunting vacation for about a week or 10 days. Of course in those days, no, it was very hard to communicate. Meanwhile, while this all was going on, people were saying, where's General Crook and his regiment? Custer, we all know what happened. So there was a lot of um, Monday morning quarterbacking about the Massacre of the little bighorn and that this was part of it that general crook had but of course we can all understand because at least at that time even Custer would have understood because if there was if there was a lot of ample game around it was hard you know it was hard to turn away really um, Bill Cody I mentioned uh, was the ulti- the greatest buffalo hunter of all time really and what he really got to start doing was providing you know yet when the railroads are being built out west, There was no sustenance for anybody. So people like Cody were essential to feed, basically, to sustain railroad crews and also other settlers as well. And so that's really where you get someone like Cody kind of came to fame as someone who was providing, really, for people who were coming west. He also then naturally became a kind of guide and a scout and was hired by the U.S. Army um, and took part in several battles with, Native American tribes. Um, he's actually one of the few non-military people to ever win the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, bill, Buffalo Bill, for participating in a battle. Um, it's interesting, because they, at one point, they took the medal away from him, saying, well, you weren't really in the army. But then I think Bill Clinton restored it all those years later. It's, so he, it's very, very, very rare, though. What's that? Yeah, I mean, of all people, so, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe. Um, the really fascinating thing, I think, about Cody is that it's hard for us to even imagine, because it was sort of like a reality show. What they were doing in those days, it was like the difference between reality and theater was so narrow. Buffalo Bill Cody, his theatrics, involved the very same people who had done the actual deeds. He would reenact things that and had the exact same props, like if a shotgun or a knife or a stagecoach was involved in a robbery or a scalping or whatever it might be, he had Wild Bill Hickok in his act, he got Sitting Bull at one point. So it was a sort of for Eastern audiences and later European audiences, it was this amazing kind of thing to see, the, you were seeing the actual people, including Cody himself, reenact murders, shootouts, Indian battles, Including the real people who had been involved, including many of the Native Americans who were then hired by Buffalo Bill to ride and and make you know show off their excellent horsemanship in his Wild West show. Which by the way, I did a little research. I noticed that the Wild West came to Boston in nineteen oh three. It was at a place called Mr. Ryan's Field on Sleaford Road. Is it Sleaford Road? That's still around, right? Sleaford Road it's like must be right outside of Boston somewhere. It's not Boston. Sleaford um, but the Boston Guardian was very enthusiastic saying the guttural cries of the Indians, the shrill calls of the Mexicans, the ooey of the cowboys and then came Buffalo Bill on a magnificent charger bowing hat in hand with stately courtesy. So for for Eastern audiences it was, watching this pageant of the Wild West with Buffalo Bill and all these other characters reenacting the the very deeds that had made them heroic in the first place, it was like for Eastern audiences participating in this same conquest of the West. It was a very satisfying performance. And when the Wild West went to Europe, some people have compared it to the same, like when the Beatles came to America in the 1960s, basically, the English went crazy for, for Buffalo Bill, including Queen Victoria who came several times to see the show and actually invited some of the, she thought the Native Americans, she worried about them not being treated well so far from home. She had them come to the palace and they would all, you know, it was, they had a kind of thing going on with even Buffalo Bill was not even really part of. And, they, and the Wild West toured all over the world. Um, you know, Buffalo Bill was like, in his time, was probably the most famous person in the world. Every, they toured widely for many, many years, and there were a lot of imitators. Um, but he was really looked up to as this kind of, sort of like America itself, basically. See, people seem to think, feel about him. Um, what else can I mention? That was um, one thing you got. You might enjoy just because it was he was a Bostonian. You know this idea of theatrics was very catchy at the time. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Joseph Knowles. Does that ring a bell? It, in Joseph Knowles was I have it in the book, and Joseph Knowles was a Bostonian who in nineteen thirteen, kind of caught up in all this excitement about who is a man, who can be out in nature and so on, announced that he would go up to Maine and run naked into the woods and that he would survive for two months and that he would then he like a like a sort of like a demonstration, basically, that this could be done, that any person could do this. And of course, uh, a Boston paper, the Boston Post sponsored him. And the idea was that he would leave messages for the Boston Post under a rock. And so the Boston reading public followed this for a couple of months, these weekly dispatches, like I killed a bear with a club, I did this or that, I found something to wear as a coat, I slept under a tree and so on and so on. And I'm making it I'm making a go of it here in the woods. And people were enraptured by this. Well of course you can imagine what the what the end of this was. A rival newspaper, the Boston American, found out that this was all a hoax. Basically he was living in a cabin, someone was feeding him, he was writing writing these things with a rock or whatever. And so it was a big, it was a big, there was a big blow up because then, of course, it proved to be a a scandal and he was kind of run out of town. Later, he went to California and sort of tried the same thing again, thinking, well, no one's heard about me here, but it didn't didn't work out. Um, Okay. You know, the patron saint of Hunter's is a man named St. Hubert, who, um, the story is that he... uh, in the year seven hundred on Good Friday was walking in the woods in God knows where, somewhere in central Europe. Where? Uh, where? France. In France, in the Ardennes, right? And encountered a all white deer with an illuminated illuminated crucifix as on its antlers, and that the deer spoke and the deer converted Hubert to Christianity. So this was, a, he became Saint Hubert, the patron saint of all hunters. And he's still, in Europe especially, there's still a ritual that involves honoring Saint Hubert when you kill an animal hunting. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that the deer also apparently, and by the way, white deer are magical for hunters. They actually exist. They're very rare, but they're they're kind of spooky. And when you see, it's very bad luck to kill one. When you see one, it's it's like, boo, you know be careful. Um, But one thing about this deer, among other things, having the candelabra on its head, was that it it spoke to him and basically urged him to be careful about not, about exhausting the supply of game. So the deer, even that early date, the white deer in St. Hubert were communicating about conservation, basically. This idea that some limits had to be placed on the number of animals that could be taken. Um, and I just I mention that because, of course, that's really where the hunting story goes next in America. The kind of huge fad for hunting that I described that started around maybe 10 years before the Civil War, by the 1880s, 1890s, some of its leading advocates were throwing up their hands because they were finding that huge populations of animals were, were vanishing. Um, you know, it's funny because when a, a lot of English and European hunters came to America because of the opportunity to hunt animals that didn't exist in Europe. Cougars, grizzlies, and buffalo. And it was kind of a joke that they would get off the boat in New York and say, where are the buffalo? And people would say, There's no, they think they thought the buffalo were going to be like in Westchester or New Jersey or something. And they'd say, well, you have to actually go out to Nebraska to see any buffalo. But seriously, what happened, though, is within a period of about 25, 30 years, because of of advances in the way buffalo hides could be processed, um, there was a huge market for them in the east. And so buffalo hunters went from killing buffalo for sustenance to killing them basically for their hides and robes and this began went on in a sort of factory level basically out in the west and within from herds of millions of buffalo uh, when William T Hornaday who was the head of the Smithsonian Institute went on his own out to the west I believe in like the late 1880s, he was going to do an inventory of how many buffalo there were. And it actually, he only counted like 1804 or something like that. How, of course, he could be exactly, I don't know, but he was very sure of himself. But that just dramatizes how rapidly these enormous, what had once been, you know, people would mistake them for a lake. You know, the early people, people who went to the West, say in the 1840s, 1850s, they'd come over a hill and they thought they'd see what they thought was a lake in the distance, it was so vast. But then as they went for it, toward it, they realized um, it was a herd of buffalo. That's how many many there were. Um, I should probably move quickly to the end. I'm sorry I took so long to. um, Let me just talk a little bit about hunting today just because that's sort of a logical place to wind up. As we know, hunting is in decline largely. In 1970, there were 40,000 registered hunters in America, Uh, 40 million rather. Today there's 11 million licensed hunters, so the numbers are way down. Um, 50% of all hunters are over the age of 47, so you don't have the young people taking it up, and they say that if you don't hunt before you're 16, you'll never pick it up later. In other words, it has to be something you grow up into, basically. Interesting, though, 70% of all Americans recognize and respect hunting as legitimate recreation. Even though you hear a lot of people react negatively to it, most people support it. And I think partly that maybe recently, you know, the hunting community has pushed back a little bit on their, the idea of the NRA and guns and the the hunters insist that their sport is far different. In other words, it's basically a single shot sport. Ideally, you only take one shot, Um, so that they feel, and they're very, people, the hunters are very conscientious, and they're very scientific and and stealthy. You have to be hunting is really hard. You have to really be dedicated, to go out before it's dawn, and and really put in the hours. Uh, so they resent and resist a bit the NRA or the gun, in other words, being associated with sort of the gun scourge that a lot of that we all are concerned about. Um, there have been a lot of, also there's incidents of like bad publicity. You know, hunters still complain about Bambi. That is, if you really want to get under a hunter's skin, that movie came out in 1942, and you still can get hunted, because they feel like that is people, you know, Bambi has almost become like a word. Everyone thinks, oh, Bambi, that's a, not a deer. And of course, the innocent deer. And of course, deer are very beautiful. They're among the most beautiful animals in their movements and such, and but the hunters, they resent that because they feel like that's not the real world of wildlife. It's not like the cartoon Bambi. But Bambi was so it was so everywhere, it was so popular that it's been hard to shake. Um, and also, of course, there are these accidental shootings, one of which happened up, I don't you remember, up in Maine here in 1988, the Karen Ann Wood, a woman outside of Bangor. You know, nowadays what's happening is the former hunting grounds are pushing up against experts, and so you occasionally have accidents where people are shot by mistake, by or by careless hunters. And there was a, up in Bangor. There was this infamous case in the late 80s of a young woman who went out in her backyard and was shot by a hunter and killed. And of course, then he was the hunter was uh, not even indicted. Basically, the local there was it set off a huge kind of local versus newcomers kind of tension of like, well, what was she doing walking? She should know better than walk around without an orange vest on. You know, there was the Maine is a huge, it has been traditionally a huge hunting state. So there was this kind of, it became a national story. But of course those stories don't, don't do hunting any good. Um, obviously the thing with Cecil the lion, the safari hunting that goes on and trophy, trophy photographs, you know, if anyone now with social media, as any of you might know, there's often a huge outcry. That people are posing, American hunters usually who've gone to Africa are posing with animals they've killed, and on social media, often the pushback comes very quickly. Um, strangely, or maybe not so strangely, it's more f- more forceful when a woman is involved. If it's a woman, there are many more wi- there are many more women hunting now. That's one of the growing, largest growing areas of hunting is women taking it up. But somehow the trophy photos of the women with the slain animal is always sets off more of a firestorm. And this goes on all the time. And of course, Cecil, the hunters refer to the killing of Cecil as their 9-11, basically, because they feel that that was an incident that really was like a dark day for all hunters. And there's been a lot, there's still, as you know, what's going on even now with President Trump trying to relax some of these restrictions about bringing trophy, you know, a lot of the airlines said we're not gonna bring animal trophies back from Africa anymore. But now there's the administration is pushing back against that. You know, Donald Jr. is a big hunter. Um, and the hunters who do go to, American hunters who go on safari, it's a huge industry, billion dollar industry, they have a lot of moxie. So when they complain about something, someone like President Trump and the White House is gonna listen. Um, all right, so maybe I should leave it there. Um, there's something I call the spectrum of hypocrisy about hunting, which is that, and that's sort of what my book tries to get at, is that there is sort of, whether there's a wrong or right to it, we're all kind of, we're all kind of complicit in it in a certain way. Just because of the times we live in, we are going to have an effect on wildlife. We live in the Anthropocene era where the human beings are really defining nature in a way. We control it now. And so anything we do, whether it's even the most benign sort of vegan farming, is going to displace animal habitat, it's going to affect wildlife, and so on. Maybe you don't see yourself ever shooting an animal, but you might be part of an industrial meat system, you might go to the supermarket, you're buying food. In other words, Everybody, I think, is on this spectrum somewhere or other. Maybe you like leather shoes or whatever it might be, a leather handbag. You would never think yourself of shooting an animal, or maybe you are a vegan or a vegetarian. There's all kinds of stops along this spectrum, I think. And I know I'm on it somewhere, but everybody, I think, has some part in it. And that's what makes the story of hunting so interesting in a way. It really is part of who we are, part of the country. And it's just a matter of recognizing that it is complicated and somehow working with that as best we can, I think. Okay, well thanks so much all for coming, thank you very much.